Hi, everybody. So nice to see you. I want to start with a question. What do you think is the most significant impediment to our practice? What do you think? Anybody have any ideas? Or well, Lots of things might come up, but I'd like to make a kind of a surprising claim. I'd like to claim that the most significant impediment to our practice is a lack of generosity. Hmm. Lack of generosity. So in this talk tonight, I want to talk about generosity. I'd like to make a case for why I think that's true and what we might be able to do about it. So let's start by first talking about the problem, and then we'll talk about the solution. So what's the problem? Well, like I said, it's a lack of generosity. And the opposite of generosity is self-centeredness. So really, self-centeredness is our problem. And don't worry, it's not your fault. Uh, It's endemic to our culture. It's a widespread problem, and it came along long before we were born, and it'll continue to exist long after we're gone. And that's because our culture itself is quite self-centered. Our our culture tells us that we are each autonomous individuals, separate selves in Zen-speak. And you can see that everywhere. Just think about our cultural archetypes. We have the Lone Ranger, right? And we have the the self-made man. And we have the rugged individual, Clint Eastwood and John Wayne and all those individuals that we highly value. So we end up seeing ourselves as individuals who are struggling against other individuals. It's me versus you as individuals rather than you and me thriving together. That almost sounds really foreign to our culture. Thriving together? No, it's me versus you. And in fact, our culture tells us that we're smart when we receive a lot while giving a little. Think of who we like to have in the headlines, the billionaires, right? Well, the billionaires didn't get a billion dollars by giving a billion dollars. They got a lot for giving a lot less than that. And our culture is built on the idea of a zero-sum game. A zero-sum game is when I win, you lose. When you win, I lose. It's a zero-sum. It always adds up to zero. So self-centeredness is a real core societal value. And it's so much of a core value that we don't even know it's present most of the time. We just simply accept that our feelings of self-centeredness are correct. That this is the right way. So it's a pretty bleak picture. Um, And so I want to spend almost all the time talking about the solutions because it won't do us much good to just beat ourselves up over something that's really not our fault. We inherited this. and uh, But we can 
change for ourselves, and in changing for ourselves, we can change the culture. So let's start with a solution of our traditional Buddhist practice. Now, traditionally, our Buddhist practice does have a solution to this. There's three steps that are normally taught in this order when one takes up a Buddhist practice. And the three steps are generosity first, and then morality, and then meditation. So I'll talk about that traditional way that Buddhist practice is introduced. So first we practice generosity, because generosity is an opening of the heart. Um, And when our heart is constricted by self-centeredness, there's really no possibility of deep transformation. We're simply too entranced by this mirage of self-interest to find our way very far in practice. So traditionally, generosity is offered first. And then after generosity has a time to settle in, then we begin the practice of morality, which is protecting both self and other. And the practice of generosity allows me to see that I don't behave morally just for me, but I behave morally for us, for all of us. And then after that, after morality has taken root, then we can actually begin to practice meditation, which is the art of discovering our true self. Because once that self-centeredness has calmed down and morality has taken root, then we can begin to actually experience this true self, the self that is communal rather than individual. Unfortunately, when Buddhism came to the West, we got it all backwards. We started doing it in reverse order. We, we try meditating first, but the trouble is the ego can't see beyond its own boundaries. And so meditation can be really difficult and be able, take a long time to pay fruits when we take it up first. So if that doesn't work, so then we say, okay, well, let's, then let's take up the precepts. That must be the way to do it. And we'll practice morality and see if that helps us. But morality feels like, to the ego, a great big loss. Because the ego can't do what it wants when it wants. Because we have the constraints of, of moral behavior. So that doesn't really work too well for us either. So then finally, later... Sometimes much, much later, we decide, okay, I'll finally take up generosity. Wonderful, but it seems like we just wasted a whole bunch of time and effort. I hope we stick around long enough to get that far. I think a lot of us come to meditation and say, well, this doesn't work right away, so I'm going to abandon it. And then we never get to the, really, the initial thing, which is practicing generosity an opening of our heart that allows all the rest to flow. So let's talk about how to actually practice generosity if we decide to take that up as a practice. What will we do? So I want to talk about the first facet of practicing generosity, which is focusing generosity on ourselves. On ourselves. And, you know, it's, let's just begin where we are with our self-centeredness. Let's start by doing this for us, right? 
And I love the way Norman Fisher uh, says this. He says, once you realize that your mind is a mess, you can finally begin to practice. So let's just realize that our mind's a mess, that our mind is one big self-centered machine that is uh, putting a lot of impediments in our way. And once we actually can see that, ah, then we can start somewhere. So if we see this self-centered quality to our mind, what does that entail? What, how do we notice that? Well, I, I think one of the primary qualities of a self-centered mind is judgment. Uh, we judge others and we judge ourselves. So we judge others to assess whether they're a threat to us. We're always looking around, right? Always looking around at other people. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Better, worse. Threat, no threat. You know, you might, you might have thoughts that arise, something like, well, yeah, well, she's um, much prettier than me, so I don't want to be around her. Or how about something like, um, oh, well, I'm, I'm definitely richer than him, so he's not a threat. I don't have to worry about him. And so we're, we're judging and comparing all the time. That's a, a quality of our self-centered mind. But we also judge ourselves just as mercilessly as we judge others. So um, we might say something negative in a judgment to ourselves like, I just can't do anything right. This just doesn't work. Nothing I do works. Or maybe, maybe a positive judgment like, ah, like I'm the best watercolor painter in the class. And I'm, I'm the best one. And of course, still somebody better comes along and then you judge them and you know how that goes so what would it be like to begin our generosity practice with ourself knowing that one of the qualities that we bring is going to be judgment what would it be what would it be like to actually practice letting go of that so what would it be like to treat ourselves with generosity rather than judgment. What would it be like to give ourselves room to make mistakes? Or to give ourselves time to rest? What would it be like to give ourselves the joy of the present moment instead of rushing off to the next accomplishment so that we can judge ourselves better than someone else? So would you imagine that? Imagine giving generosity to yourself. Notice what that feels like right now in your body. Just take a moment to breathe in generosity to yourself and feel that in your body. Can you feel the visceral sense of relief when you practice generosity? It feels lovely in my body. So that's the first 
facet of practicing generosity. So another facet of practicing generosity is the morality of it for ourselves. You know, the first facet, being generous to myself, is focused on me. But we can then move beyond that to the morality of generosity, and that's focused on us in behaving in such a way that we are safe and you are safe. All of us together are safe. And traditionally how we do this is by taking up the, up the precepts. The precepts are our guidelines to moral behavior. And there's lots and lots of formulizations of the precepts in, in Buddhist practices of all sorts. And you know the Buddha put them originally, for instance, the one on generosity, he phrased it very simply, do not steal. Pretty simple. Now, the Plum Village tradition has a somewhat um, more vast description. I'd like to read from, at least from the 1992 version of this, uh, of the precept on true happiness. It goes like this. Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I vow to cultivate loving kindness and learn ways to work for the well-being of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I vow to practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. I'm determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. Points us in the same direction as the Buddha, but with a lot more um, elaboration. So just one more um, elucidation of the precept on generosity. And this comes from the Japanese Zen tradition. And this is as, as Joko Beck has, has phrased it. I take up the way of taking only what is freely given and giving freely of all that I can. I'll read that one more time. I take up the way of taking only what is freely given and giving freely of all that I can. I really like that one. It feels to me like a middle way. The Buddha's was a little bit too brief. The Plum Village one, I kind of get lost. I forget what the precept's about. But this one I like. This one, it appeals to me. So I want to talk using this one, if I could. Yeah. So what I like about it is that it, it points us toward the morality of generosity focusing on both taking and giving and taking and giving. So let's, let's start with the first, the first part of that, the receiving part, taking only what is freely given, taking only what is freely given. So the Buddha said, do not steal. That's very clear. This is the most obvious form of, of not taking anything that's not freely given to you. Because if I steal from you, I've taken something you didn't offer me. Right? So, so that's really pretty clear. And stealing has gross forms uh, and subtle forms. 
So the gross forms we've often made laws around. Um, bank robbery. That's a gross form of stealing, of course. Um, shoplifting, whether that means you're taking something expensive or you're taking a candy bar. We've made laws around that. Or um, some more gross sorts of stealing examples in our era would be online fraud. This is happening a lot. Phishing scams. My mom must send two or three of these a week to me saying, uh, do I have to pay attention to this? Uh, or mm, other kinds of online ones are data theft and um, ransomware. You know, people going after small hospitals and municipal governments and tying up their data and say, pay me ransom. Those are those are gross examples of stealing. We, we all know that's not right. But it's the subtle forms that really interest me and that, that I think are, are where our practice meets this precept. So here's some examples of some subtle forms of stealing that you might not have thought about. How about not telling your restaurant server that they undercharged you? Hmm. How about this one? Your partner makes a batch of cookies and you eat more than your share. Um, here's a whole set of them. How about this? Taking too much of some kind of a communal resource. Like, let's just say you go to Burger King and you grab a dozen packets of ketchup when you really only need one or two. Or you go to the gas station and they put out the paper towels for you to use to wipe your window and you take a whole bunch because you think you might want them later. or one I've been tempted to do, you go and stay in a hotel and they have a breakfast bar and you may think, well, maybe I'll take a couple extra bananas and some yogurt for lunch too. There's no laws against this stuff, but it's still stealing. It's really important to become aware of these subtle ways that we take what isn't freely offered because it shows us our grasping mind. We can justify all kinds of ways to not say that, or say that's not stealing, or to minimize it, but it really can show us our grasping mind. You know, our grasping mind steals things that are not tangible sometimes. So like, for instance, do we steal time that other people didn't offer us? Maybe we arrive late and they have to wait for us. We stole that time for them. Or maybe we stay late. They didn't plan on us being there. We've stolen their time. Or how about stealing attention that other people didn't offer us? Do we dominate conversations? Do we make ourselves the center of attention? Or how about this one? This is even more subtle. Do we steal our wisdom from others by not speaking up when we have something to share? Hmm. So you can see that there's a lot of subtle ways that we might be stealing 
and not even have thought about it. And when we become aware of them, it shows us our mind of attainment. And that's really important to see. You know, we might have a mind of attainment that that feels like we don't have enough. So we need to get some more of something to fill that. Or maybe we feel like we aren't enough. So we have to get more attention to boost our self-esteem. Or this is one that's really um, uh, pertinent for us, us middle-class folks. Maybe we feel entitled to have more than others. And so taking more than our share just simply feels fair. doesn't feel like stealing at all. Of course, I should be the one that gets on the airplane first and has the best seat. I'm entitled somehow. So let's talk about the other side of the precept, about giving freely of all that I can. This is what we usually think of when we think of generosity. We don't usually think of the, the, the stealing side of it, but let's talk about this a bit. So giving isn't the same as charity. Now, charity is important, but we can give without actually opening our heart. So imagine the difference between, for um, say, being moved by the suffering of the people in Turkey and Syria who have been the victims of these earthquakes recently and, and writing a check to the Red Cross or the Red Crescent. That seems like a kind of an honest giving versus a charitable donation in which we go to an auction and we get to hold up a paddle and everyone can see how much we're going we're gonna to offer. That's not quite as clean, is it? I think about this when I go to the symphony with my mom. I, uh, I notice in the back of the Seattle Symphony catalog, there's a list of the donors and how much they give. And uh, there's, there's someone's name on the symphony hall that's there because they gave a whole bunch of money. That's not quite this kind of generosity we're talking about in this precept. There's a, a phrase in our, in our culture that says, give till it hurts. And it's sort of manipulative, you know, because it's often, it's often said by somebody who wants you to give them a bunch of stuff or a bunch of money. But I think it actually has something uh, important for us. It has a truth built into it. Because uh, our measure of generosity is often self-centered. It's to give as little as possible for as much gain as possible. So giving until it hurts shows us the pain of our stinginess. So that can be quite useful, quite useful. And we can wonder, what is it that hurts when we give? Hmm. Are we touching that belief again that we don't have enough? And so it hurts to give? Are we touching our assumptions of privilege? Yeah, that idea that, well, I worked hard to get here. They didn't, whoever they are. I'm not going to give anything to them. So we give till it hurts. And then we notice the contraction of our heart that hurts when we give. Very good way to show our attachments. 
So the precept on generosity is really lovely. It's really lovely because it protects us all. It shows me where I'm trapped, and it helps ease your suffering when I offer you something of importance. So both sides of it are really important. I'm receiving clarity of mind, and you're receiving something of value. That's really lovely. So there's a particular kind of kind of giving that's practiced within the Sangha, and, and that's called dana. And um, this is how we practice generosity in our sanghas, as opposed to just out in the world. And the practice of dana is essential for a sangha to function. If everybody gives what they can, the sangha can thrive, and it sustains itself. But unfortunately, the sustainable dana in sanghas has not found a home in the West yet. And so we're really struggling with that. We still see ourselves as in some sort of a zero-sum game. And so we tend not to give very well with the Sangha. And this is an important practice to become aware of. And I don't think we're going to solve this in our lifetimes. Um, But I think it's important that that we begin to see this that we really learn to see the Sangha is not an other that I give to. The Sangha is me. The Sangha is us. And when we give to the Sangha, we give to us. We give to ourselves. And I know that many of us that practice together, we feel a deep gratitude and we want to create a sustainable Sangha that serves many people in the world. And there's a real joy in that. And we see that we've received far more than we could ever offer. But in a broad generalization, I don't think we're there yet in the West, and we're struggling. And the way we're struggling is that we often steal from the few folks in the Sangha who really do most of the work. And it's a direct form of stealing. And so I really want us to to, to grow in that area, to become aware when that's happening, and to be sure and offer what we can to the Sangha, because the Sangha is us. It's not giving, the, giving away to someone else. It's giving to us. And I speak directly about this because it's really important, and I'll continue to speak directly about this, because I want us to find the freedom of generosity. Okay, I want to mention just a few practices and then I'll, then I'll stop. So some practices we can do to actually open our heart and feel the freedom of generosity. And the first practice that I really, really like, it's, it's from Diane Rosetto's book, Waking Up to What You Do. And Gail gave me a copy of that book a while ago. Thank you, Gail. Uh, it's a lovely book. And uh, Diane is a student of Joko Beck, who also was the formula of the precept. So the, this practice is called What's my price? What's my price? And it goes like this. So when we give, we very often expect something in return. We set a price that the receiver should pay. So for instance, uh, if you hold the door open for someone, the price is that they should say thank you. And if they don't, they better watch out. 
because you'll have a lot of judgment about that. Right? So that's my price. You're going to say thank you. And we do that all the time. We do that everywhere. And so begin to notice that um, in yourself. Because setting a price for our giving is really an unfair thing to do to another person. And why is that? Because that person has no idea what we're charging them for our gift. They have no idea. It's a, it's a transaction with a hidden price. So you might begin to notice when you do something, when you give, are you demanding a price very subtly and without saying it out loud? Do you expect them to give you thanks or recognition? Or maybe for them to tell everyone else how wonderful you are? What's your price? Yeah. So I think that's a fun practice to take up. Just, go, just walk around asking yourself, what's my price? What's my price? Hmm. What's my price? <clears throat> and then another, another practice that I'd like to suggest is practicing with this precept. The, the formulation I'm using for this talk is I take up the way of taking only what is freely given and giving freely of all that I can. So you can begin by noticing when you're taking what isn't freely given. So, for instance, do you maybe take a couple of extra pencils home from work? Or do you grab several creamers at Starbucks so you can have some at home with your coffee? Or do you take time and attention away from others in a meeting? What are you taking? And then when you notice that, notice what it feels like in your body when you're taking what isn't freely given. What does that actually feel like? I know for myself, when I realize I'm doing something like that, and I, and I turn my attention to my body, I can really feel a contraction. I can feel a tightening down. It's unpleasant. And I thought that extra creamer from Starbucks was going to make me happy. And actually, it made me ugh. So I'm inviting you to begin to notice this as well. Not to judge yourself. Not to say, oh, I was bad for doing that. But to say, oh, look what I'm doing. Hmm, what does that feel like? Remember the generosity to yourself, not to judge? Same thing. Okay, and, and on the on the other side of that, notice when you're not when you're not giving freely of all you can. The other side of the precept. Notice when you're not giving freely. So notice what it feels like to keep things you you don't need anymore, rather than give them away to someone who could really use them. Or noticing what does it feel like when you hoard the roadway. And don't let somebody else merge in front of you. Or what about when you withhold kindness from someone, when you could offer kindness? What does that feel like in your body? You just might just notice that, particularly the driving one. I think we do this a lot, where we see somebody wants to get in, so what do we do? We speed up a little bit so they can't get in. 
Notice that and notice what that feels like in your body while you're doing it. Is that the kind of feeling you want to carry around with you? My guess is that it really doesn't. It really isn't the kind of thing you want to carry around. And then the other side of this, I've noticed, I've said notice the negative things, but let's notice the positive too. What does it feel like when you give and receive freely? What does that feel like? Can you notice those moments when you give abundantly? When you notice someone with nothing to eat and you have a whole sandwich and you can give a half of it away? What does that feel like in your body? And what does it feel like when you generously receive something offered to you by another person? Because your receiving is an act of generosity too. What does that feel like to allow them to have that sense of generosity in their own body? Mm. So, Generosity is really a wonderful way to live. It's so freeing and so contrary to our cultural habit of self-centeredness. So I hope that we can take up this practice of generosity together and we can experiment with this. We can experiment what it feels to move from a contraction of self-centeredness to the freedom of generosity. Thank you for your kind attention. I'll invite the sound of the bell.